Chapter 11 of Cuts by the County, or Grace Darnell, by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. I love, and he loves me again. Colonel Stukeley spent a long and wearisome afternoon, dawdling about the lanes and little clusters of laborers' cottages which called themselves villages, entering into conversation with every man, woman, and child to make it beguile into a dialogue, and suffering intensely from his conscientious efforts to understand a patois which was almost as a foreign language to him. In this wise, performing the part of the benevolent friend of humanity, a character partaking the idiosyncrasies of Harun al-Rashid and Sir Roger de Coverley, he heard much irrelevant matter, from village politics and hothouse philosophy, to the smallest domestic details, with the full, true, and particular account of the speaker's latest stand further with the squire, the parson, or the bailiff. But in all the flood of talk, to which he listened with a sublime patience, the good colonel could discover not one solitary sentence bearing upon the task which he had set himself to perform. Riding slowly homeward, he tried to cheer himself with the notion that as he had failed in the endeavour to trace the footsteps of Victor de Camelac, so also must Mr. Penwin fail. He had no apprehension that his talents in the detective line were inferior to those of the professional inquirer. Indeed, it seemed to him that his education and experience must be more than a match for the technical training of Scotland Yard. He argued, therefore, that the young Frenchman had got clear off, and that he had nothing to fear for his beloved goddaughter. The eight o'clock dinner was a dismal function. Lady Darnell still kept to her room. Miss Darnell sat in her brother's place and went through the ceremonial with a fortitude which savoured of martyrdom. Grace edged her chair as close as she could to the colonel's, ate hardly anything, and was curiously absent-minded, looking up at her godfather every now and then with a little appealing glance which went straight to his heart, smiling to herself now and then as she looked down at her plate with a strange, shy smile, and at one stage of the entertainment, suddenly bursting into tears. "'My dear Grace, if you cannot command yourself better than this, you should follow Lady Darnell's example and hide yourself from the light of day,' remonstrated her aunt. "'Let her cry,' said the colonel, patting the girl's shoulder affectionately. "'Tears are a relief, and why should she repress the signs of her grief? There is no secret about her sorrow. We are all of the same mind.' The colonel had no inclination to sit alone over his claret. He left the dining-room with Miss Darnell and her niece. In the hall, Grace put her arm through his. "'Come on the terrace for a little walk,' she said." "'My dear Grace, there is no moon, and it is very cold,' urged Dora. "'What pleasure can there be in walking on the terrace on such a night?' "'No pleasure. I do not expect pleasure, but I must have air. I am stifling for want of air.' "'I should have thought you had air enough this afternoon when you were tearing about the grounds with Mr. Colchester,' retorted her aunt, sharply. "'Will you come, Godpapa?' asked Grace, ignoring the reproof. "'You don't mind walking up and down the terrace with me for a quarter of an hour, even if it is dark and cold. "'I shall like it very much if you put on your jacket.' Grace ran upstairs, obtained the latest bulletin of her father's condition, always the same hopeless report, and came down in her sealskin jacket. In another minute, she and the colonel were out of doors, and beyond the searching eye and the keen ear of Dora. The night was moonless, but not altogether dark. The stars were shining above the treetops in the park, a sweeping line of foliage which shut out the world beyond. "'Any news?' asked Grace, excitedly, hanging on the colonel's arm. "'Not a word. I believe that unlucky young fellow has got clear off, and you may wash your hands of him and his fate.' "'I cannot do that,' said Grace gloomily. "'I am under a promise.' "'No promise can hold good with a criminal,' answered the colonel. "'A criminal? In heaven's name, what do you mean?' "'I mean that a detective has been at Jarnall this morning, "'and that he has discovered the footprints of a stranger across the flower-beds, "'just such footprints as would be made by that wretched down-at-heel creature we saw on the common. "'There was a considerable sum of money stolen out of Lady Jarnall's morning-room, "'money which we all know to have been there on the night your father was shot.' It is clear to the man from Scotland Yard that Sir Alan was wounded by a stranger who entered that room and stole that money. Now, my reading of the story is that this Kamalock was hanging about the house on that night, in the hope of getting an interview with you, that he was on the balcony for some time, saw that money put away, and took advantage of Lady Jarnall's leaving the room to enter and possess himself of that money. He was surprised by your father and turned upon him, in the manner we know. No, no, it is too horrible. The man I once loved, the man I promised to marry, a midnight robber, a murderer? It cannot be, protested Grace. 
Surely I am not an utter fool. I know that man was a gentleman by birth, a gentleman by education and breeding. Gentlemen drift to the gutter. Gentlemen join the criminal classes every day in the year, my poor Grace, said the colonel, gravely. I do not suppose for a moment that you would mistake a cad for a gentleman, but there is such a thing as a reckless man gone thoroughly to the bad, and I am afraid your Victor de Comelock is just such a one. All we can hope is that he has got clear off, and that your dear father's wound may not prove fatal. Fatal? Oh, God, if it were, I should be my father's murderer, for it was my folly that brought that man to this house. Oh, why should so trivial a sin bring such a terrible punishment? If my father were to die, I should never lift up my head again. I should pray God to end my days. I never, never could know peace of mind any more. She clung to her kind old friend, sobbing hysterically, beside herself with horror. My dear child, don't give way to such grief, said the colonel, soothingly. God grant your father may recover, and, after all, this suspicion of mine may be wrong. The criminal may be a stranger of whom we know nothing. Remember, it is only a conjecture on my part. If you were right, if it were he, my sin would have been the cause of my father's death, said Grace, and then she remembered that bitter cry of Lady Darnall's, those awful words spoken by the lips of a sleeper. My fault, my fault, I murdered him. How strange that those self-accusing words, uttered unconsciously, should be echoed now by Grace, waking and sentient. No, I will not believe it, she said presently. After all, there is no evidence to go upon. There is no real ground for such a hideous suspicion. I believe that poor creature fell down somewhere, ill or dying, and that he never came to Darnall Park. You may be right, Grace. My view of the case was only a succession of conjectures. I should never have thought of it if that man from Scotland Yard had not set my wits at work. There is something infectious in the maneuvers of these people. Only I thought it right to tell you everything, more especially as you insist upon considering yourself bound to this adventurer. I insist upon acting as a woman of honor should act, answered Grace with a heroic air. You men are always talking about honor as if it were a peculiar property of your sex. You pretend to think that we poor weak things don't even know what it means. Now I want you to understand that you are guilty of scandalous injustice. And the Frau and Wort. And you consider yourself bound to a beggar? I consider myself bound to him till he releases me. I know he would release me from my promise if I could only see him and tell him everything. Indeed, there is something that he must be told, then? Yes, murmured Grace, hanging her pretty head. Colonel Stukeley lifted the bent head between his hands and kissed his goddaughter's forehead. My pets, I begin to understand, he said. I suspected all through that weary dinner that you had something to tell me. You have found out at last that a frank, honest young fellow whom you have known since childhood is better worth loving than an unknown foreigner whom you met by chance in a picture gallery. Mr. Colchester was walking in the shrubbery with me this afternoon, faltered Grace, and he asked me to be his wife. It was very, very sudden, and he took me so by surprise that I'm afraid I allowed him to think that I am rather fond of him. What was it you said, Grace? It was not anything I said to him, it was only my manner. Oh, said the colonel, it was your manner, was it? There's a good deal in manner, and I suppose by the time you left the shrubbery you had engaged yourself to young Colchester in spite of your promises to the Frenchman? This is your view of ein Frau ein Wort, I take it, one at a time. You insist upon your mean opinion of me, cried Grace, stamping her foot. No, I did not engage myself to him. I told him that I could never marry him. I tried to tell him that I did not care for him, but my lips would not speak the false words. I know now that I do care for him, that the other was only a foolish infatuation, of which I have good reason to be ashamed. I am glad you have found out the truth at last, Grace. Now, my darling, you mustn't fret any more. Leave everything to Providence and your old godfather. Hark, there are wheels coming up the avenue. Who can it be at such an hour? The doctor paid his last visit before dinner. It was Mr. Penwern and a fly from the village. Colonel Stukeley hurried back to the house, dreading yet eager to hear the detective's account of his investigations. Mr. Penwern was shown into the library, where the colonel found him closeted with Dora Darnall, who had not lost a minute in going to him. "'Well, Mr. Penwern, what's your news?' asked the colonel, taking the case out of Dora's hands. The detective had an idea that the money and the authority were both on the side of the lady, but there was that in the Afghan hero's bearing and tone which could not be slighted. "'My afternoon has not been unprofitable,' answered Penwern. 
"'I have got the bills out, fifty of them, "'and I believe I am on the right track for the man.' "'Indeed,' said the colonel, feeling very uncomfortable. "'He had a hideous dread of publicity "'for that little episode of Grace's schoolgirl life, "'a dread which was intensified by the circumstance "'of Colchester's proposal. "'Yes, I think I am on the right sense this time. "'The bills had an immediate effect. "'Most people had heard of Sir Allen's wound, "'but the robbery of the notes was news to everybody. "'I distributed the bills with my own hands, "'and the villagers at whose shops I left them "'had all a good deal to say about the trouble at the great house.' "'The old woman who keeps a general shop. "'Grocery, clothes, boots. "'Mrs. Mop,' said Dora. "'Mrs. Mop. "'Yes, that's the lady. "'She insisted on my helping her to spell through the bill from beginning to end. "'When she came to the part about the notes, she became tremendously excited. "'I wouldn't mind laying a wager that it was that scoundrel that did it,' she said. "'What scoundrel?' asked I. "'Jaker,' said she. "'And she had such a rooted idea that I ought to know all about Mr. Jaker "'that I could hardly induce her to tell me anything about the gentleman.' "'He is a very disreputable person,' said Dora, looking up at the colonel. "'A poacher, a man who has been in prison more times than anyone can remember. "'He lives half in and half out of prison. "'People are very kind to his wretched wife and children, "'who are always in a state of semi-starvation. "'But last year he turned savage and set himself deliberately "'to annoy Mr. Colchester and the hunting men. "'He shot a number of foxes and waylaid the hunting people "'when they were drawing the covers, and used most abominable language. "'And since then he has been altogether an outlaw, "'and his family are allowed to starve.' It is considered an offence against every member of the hunt to give them so much as a loaf of bread. Not a man likely to be changing a twenty-pound note honestly came by, said the detective. Do you mean to say that Jaker has been changing twenty-pound notes? He changed one at eight o'clock yesterday morning at Mrs. Mop's shop, where he bought himself a regular rig-outs, boots, corduroy suits, flannel shirts, pallet overcoat, sou'wester. Mrs. Mop had not done so big a line for years, she told me. He made her route him out with an old tea-chest to carry his kit, and walked off with it to Scadley Station in time for the nine o'clock train to London. He told nobody where he was going, but there is an idea that he meant Canada. "'He has often talked of Canada and the great things he could do there,' said Miss Darnell. "'I have heard as much from his wife, whom I used to visit at one time.' "'Before her husband put himself out of court by shooting foxes,' remarked the colonel with a sudden air of cheerfulness which deeply offended Dora. It was such an inexpressible relief to him to see the detective on an entirely new scent that he for the moment forgot the cloud of sorrow brooding over the house of Darnall. "'I paid Mrs. Jaker a visit this evening,' said the detective. "'I was surprised to find what roomy quarters your poor have to starve in. Why, in London, a house as big as Jaker's cottage would be made to accommodate forty people. The cubicle contents of the pigsty are more than of a room that lodges a family in Whitechapel.' "'It is an old homestead that once went with a small farm,' explained Dora. When the land was taken away to join the next farm, the old cottage remained empty for some years, and then it was let cheap to Jaker, who was not quite such a bad character in those days. I don't suppose he has paid any rent for the last ten years, but the cottage is an out-of-the-way place, and would not suit everybody. I should think not, indeed, ma'am, said the detective, shuddering. I never saw such a cut-throat place. The cottage is at one end of a long lane, ankle-deep in mud, which leads to nowhere. It is an accommodation lane, remarked Dora. Lord knows whom it can be intended to accommodate, ma'am. The cottage is half a mile from any other house, and how any Christian in his sober senses could be tempted to go there except for motives of benevolence is more than I understand. However, I found my way there this evening, in the dark, too, and a nice state my boots were in when I got there. I had to go back to the inn and get myself brushed up before I could venture to show myself here. But I saw Mrs. Jaker, and I put her through a pretty close catechism, and I don't think that there's any doubt that, in consequence of the telegram I sent to Scotland Yard this morning, Mr. Jaker will be stopped to Liverpool before he can get on board the vessel that was to take him to Canada." "'You believe he means to try for Canada?' inquired the colonel. "'From what I get out of Mrs. Jaker, I don't think there's the slightest doubt of it.' "'Mrs. Jaker is a very artful person,' said Miss Darnell. "'I know she has always contrived to deceive me.' The detective smiled quietly, and to himself, as it were. He could not see that this fact had any bearing on the case. It was one thing to hoodwink a spinster brought up in cotton wool. It was another thing to deceive a man educated in Scotland Yard. "'Did you find out whether Jaker has left his wife any of the money?' 
He may have left her a pound or two to keep the wolf from the door till he chooses to send her the passage money for her and her children. They were swarming about the place like rabbits in a warren, poor little beggars. He promises to send for her directly he gets there and has looked about him a bit. I don't believe she has any idea of a robbery or of his being possessed of a large sum of money. He told her that he had won ten pounds at Shiverham races, putting five shillings on a horse that stood forty to one in the betting. She believed him, poor soul, though it was a puzzle to her to know where he got the five shillings. And it's my belief that he has left her to starve or to live upon charity till he chooses to send her the passage money. "'You don't know Mrs. Jaker,' said Dora. "'From what I know of her character, I should say she knows all about the robbery and has got the lion's share of the money in her possession.' "'Do you really think so?' said the detective, with a troubled look. "'If I thought that, I'd get a magistrate's warrant tomorrow morning and search the house, but she looked to me such a weak, helpless, trodden-down creature.' That's all acting. When Jaker annoyed the hunting men, she used to go with him, and her language was worse than his. Mr. Colchester said it was she who goaded him on to do it. I'll get a warrant tomorrow morning, said Mr. Penwern. You must have a good appetite for supper after such a laborious afternoon and evening, said the colonel. Will you order something for Mr. Penwern, Miss Darnall? He rang the bell, and Dora informed the footman who answered it that Mr. Penwern would take supper in the housekeeper's room. This was a fall almost as big as Wolsey's, after the elegant little luncheon with which Mr. Penwern had been regaled at the colonel's bidding. So like a maiden aunt, thought the detective, as he went off through long corridors and winding ways to that humbler and busier portion of the mansion, which was as the old town of Edinburgh to the new town. In this more lowly quarter, however, he was well cared for and contrived to spend a jovial evening. End of chapter 11